Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Summertime and things are heating up on episode 219 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. So great covering E3 last week, but it's also nice to get back to what we normally do. You know, like talking about comics and This Week in Geektainment, especially our special guest this week, getting ready to talk about the two-hour season finale of The Expanse on Sci-Fi this coming Wednesday. I've got Cass Anvar on the show this week. Of course, Alex Kamal, who is the pilot of the Rocinante, and so much more than that. We'll dive into that with him. I also want to let you guys know... We're revamping our website a little bit at downandnerdypodcast.com. Going to make things a lot more accessible for you. Going to be a lot more content on there, like more articles, more reviews, things like that. So hopefully you're going over there and bookmark it, downandnerdypodcast.com. And let me know what you think of the new design as well. But I know you've been waiting. It's finally back. Up next, what we're reading on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is writer Zach Kaplan, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Feels great to drag out the long box again, fire up the tablet or the laptop, whatever you're reading on. It's time for what we're reading, and it's time for our new Aftershock book that I've been looking forward to for a while from my buddy Zach Kaplan, who writes Lost City Explorers and Alvaro Saracesca on the art, Chris Blythe on the colors, A Larger World's Tony Pateri on the on the letters, and, and Rafael De La Torre and Marcelo Maiolo on the covers. Now, this kind of really, really was a story that followed a group of scientists that went to explore an unknown part of the Earth when a very strange and tragic event occurs. And then from there, we sort of follow a moody teenager named Hell who's trying to really figure out her her life and what direction she's going in. You know, at that point where you're kind of at the end of high school, you're getting ready to start college, and you're thinking, okay, what is it exactly did I want to do? What am I doing this for? It's, it's, it's exactly like that. And she has a friend named Maddie along with her brother Homer and, her, and his girlfriend June. And that dynamic's very, very interesting family dynamic, especially between the, the brother and sister, Hell and Homer, because almost because of the girlfriend and how, you know, sometimes the girlfriend can add that tension into the family, like nobody likes her sort of thing. Not that there's a lot of people to not like her, but... She's just very different than those two, and putting someone that's very different in the, in that dynamic, I think added something, and will will continue add things in future issues. Now, what Hell finds out in the story is kind of like more. It, it seemed like it wasn't right what happened, and then she finds out from someone else that maybe it didn't happen that way, and sort of takes a leap of faith and discovers that uh, something that's really going to get the story started. Now, as I'm reading this book from start to finish, after I got done, I thought to myself, this really felt like Goonies meets Stranger Things to me. That's exactly how I pegged this book after I was done reading it, because you have that mystical element of, okay, something's not right here, and what is it that we really just discovered, or what's really going on portion of Stranger Things. And then you have the real-life exploration factor of the Goonies and that wanting to find out exactly if this, you know, almost like if a myth is true sort of thing, even though that's not really what this story deals with. That's kind of more what the Goonies deals with. But it's like that intrigue of, oh, look what I just found. Let's follow this and see if this is real. So you combine those two elements together and you get Lost City Explorer, which I think is really, really neat and a great concept by Zach Kaplan, and I mean, should be no surprise with Port of Earth and, and Eclipse and everything that Zach's done so far. He's been really inventive and really great, and that's why I love his work. Now, the dynamics of all of these characters together, and if that's what we're going to do is we're going to follow them all together from this point on, it's going to be very interesting in how they're not just going to all want to kill each other at certain points. I'm not sure. Maybe they will. And I say that in the way of how they're not going to all get sick of each other and just not argue all the time is going to be really, really interesting. But playing off of each other and how, remember how it evolved in Goonies. I'll be interested to see if that kind of takes a similar tone where there are some characters that couldn't stand each other at one point, but then you see them in a different light once you're together in a group dynamic 
and that maybe changes things. So I'll be interested to see if that's the kind of beat that it follows. The art was very, very good and detailed. Should have been no surprise there given who was involved. It also really set a little bit of a dark mood and a dark tone, and I think that that also goes into the colors as well. So really looking forward to what's coming up. For Lost City Explorers, this is definitely a pull for me, and I was really, really hoping that this book would be good, and it did not disappoint. Now it's time to call on some angels. As a matter of fact, Charlie's Angels, number one from Dynamite Comics, being brought back by the writing of John Lehman and Joe Isma on the art, Celeste Woods on the colors, Taylor Esposito on the letters. Amazing cover by David Finch, Jimmy Reyes, and Triona Farrell. Loved the cover. Now this is set in the 70s so it's almost like a true Charlie's Angels adaptation. You've got Sabrina Jill and Kelly. Bosley's there, Charlie's there and they're actually working a case for a man who kind of co-owns a club. His partner's involved in organized crime and the follies sort of happen for there. Now maybe this is a tiny 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 bit of a spoiler. So I'm going to give you just a little bit of a warning, not really to do with the plot but more about the book itself. It very much felt like it was episodic, like I was watching an episode of Charlie's Angels. There's even kind of an intro. You know how every show has their intro and the and the song goes along with it? It very much felt like that at one point. We got like a little bit of the story and then the intro and then back into the story. It really felt like I was watching an episode of Charlie's Angels, and that was neat. And that really, that that actually kind of drew me in to the story, too. So I think that if that was the purpose that it was supposed to serve, then bravo, because you got me there. It also ended up setting up a very larger story arc. So it wasn't just like a like a like a one off or a procedural type thing where okay, we're going to deal with this case and then move on to the next case sort of thing. It, you do get the idea that there is going to be a next case, but you see a little something in the middle of the story and you're like, "Ah, that's probably going to be important later on." And it does end up being important. So there will be a larger arc coming up in these next, it seems like this is part one of five. So I'm guessing the next five, next four issues after this one, very much going to deal with this larger story. Now it does make the reader very aware that they are in the seventies, not just stylistically with the clothes and the art, which was really, really spot on for the era, but certain things that let's just say certain things that would never really fly today and certain attitudes that just would not be okay. It's like, oh, by the way, yeah, this was the 70s, and this is the kind of stuff that went down. So I think making this feel authentic was really, really important, and that is something that was definitely hit on very, very early and very, very well. It just, I just, it was charming. The whole book really was charming to me. I loved the characters. The angels did so, so well. And I never would have expected John Lehman to write this book. No offense, John. I, it's, it's a, it, you did a fantastic job, but when I think Charlie's angels, I do, I do not think John Lehman. And I think that that was an amazing job by him. I mean, the stuff that I know from John Lehman is, you know, we've got you, and then you've got the judge dread predator alien crossover that he wrote for dark horse. And then all of a sudden you say, Oh, well, let's have, let's have John do Charlie's angels. And it worked out so, so well. And it's just a testament to how good of a writer that John Lehman actually is and the different stuff that he can do. And then you combine a solid art team, again, stylistically right on point. And if you keep giving me great covers like the one from David Finch, excuse me, then you've definitely, definitely got me hooked. This is another pull for me. I've, I've always loved the Charlie's Angels TV show and, and these and the, and the episodes. You know, even the first movie I didn't think was all that bad. So glad to see Charlie's Angels back in comics, and hopefully this trend will continue into future issues. That's going to do it for what we're reading up next. You know I didn't get a chance to talk about any of the Arrowverse finales yet and what I thought of those seasons. So Supergirl just had its finale. I'll talk about that. And my full Arrowverse season recap is up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is David Harris from Supergirl. Uh, you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. We don't need the Wave Rider or a Legion Ring to travel back in time because we are talking about the Arrowverse and the recap of basically every show from this past season because I actually didn't get a chance to talk about them because we had so much going on. But I really want to start with the most recent finale of Supergirl and that season as a whole. Now, against a lot of spoilers, a lot, a lot of spoilers going to be coming at you. So I really want to just go over each season just a little bit. And talk about what I, how I felt. Now, with Supergirl, I really felt like 
as the season went on, and especially at the end of the season in this last episode, everybody sort of finds out who they are and their own identity this season and what their purpose is. And for some, that takes them away from the show and away from the DEO or their team. First of all, you've got Wynn's going to be leaving and going to the future to help out in the future with one of his designs. And then you've got Brainy of the Legion who can't go back because of the dangers to AI. And Monel again, can't walk away from the Legion. He has to go back. And then James Olsen sort of outing himself as Guardian and, and taking off his mask. And, and everybody sort of found their way, including Kara. She got a taste of what it was like to be back on Krypton when she found Argo City. And then she decides, you know, as much as I love that and seeing my mom, my home is really here. And Alex's story this season, I thought was one of the really, really powerful ones as well. And finding out how much motherhood and family really, really is important to her and how much that is something she wants. And that was also a theme of this season. You had the ups and downs of family and relationship, whether it be the relationship between Kara and Monel or the relationship between Kara and almost everybody this season because we saw some changes in Kara and the friendship that was developed between Sam and Kara and 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 Lena as well was very very interesting and then how that fractured at one point so the rises and falls I thought in this season of Supergirl were really really great but I got to tell you my I think one of my favorites if not my favorite thing about this season was the relationship between Jean and his dad, Marin. I mean, and it ripped my heart out to find out that he was losing his memories and dying. And then what Marin did in the finale was nothing short of spectacular. I'll admit it, I teared up a couple of times during their interactions, especially when they were doing the transfer of the memories. That was a very emotional scene. And and just seeing Jean Jones in that light and see him so just upset and distraught and not ready for his dad to leave and seeing him in that really different light. I mean, he's always been as Wynn likes to call him Papa bear, right? He's always been Papa bear. He's always been like the head of the family sort of guy. And he's always been the strongest of the strong. And then to see him in that weak moment, I thought was a really great thing to forward his character and show another side and a testament to David Harewood and everything that he did this season in evolving that character as well and how he performed was just nothing short of amazing. And speaking of evolving, we had the evolving villain story as well. You know, there's Coville and then that evolved into the witches and the world killers and how that world killer thing sort of evolved throughout the season as well. And then bringing Lena into the mix and trying to decide, okay, is she a Luthor or not? We don't really. We still kind of don't really know that, do we? We we sort of get a hint of that in the finale where she's still studying the Harinel, and you're like, okay, you said you didn't have any more, so you're lying again, kind of thing. Where's this gonna go? So I just loved everything about this season of Supergirl. Not only do I think that this might have been the best season of Supergirl yet, I think this might have been the best season of the Arrowverse shows. And before you tell me that I'm crazy, it had. Some of everything. It was like Supergirl was the quiet show this year, right? The show that was put, you know, it had a different hiatus than some of the other shows. And it almost got put on the back burner and why it had such a late finale. And then when I came back to it, it and, and I found myself wanting to get back to Supergirl during that hiatus instead of saying, oh, well, when Supergirl comes back, it comes back. No, I, I actually felt myself missing the show. and that's And that tells me how good of a season it really was. And then the way it wrapped it up in these final episodes after it came back from hiatus and everything that they were able to do and not rush any of it one bit, I thought was great. And the focus that they kept on the story and kind of pushing and pulling the family dynamic with the evil that they are presented and everything that like with Alex and Ruby and how that kind of went down when, when, when Ruby's mom was sick, and when she found out that her mom was Rain, I just thought that Supergirl, from top to bottom, did it had a fantastic season. And I know that the report just came out that it looks like they're going to be adapting Red Sun. That's what that whole last scene was about. And I'll be very interested to see how they end up pulling that off. And I think that that's going to be a really, really exciting season coming up for Supergirl. Let's move on to Arrow now. And, I mean, you want to talk about conflict. That's basically 
how I felt about this past season of Arrow was the conflict. And really, as Diggle said at one point, the season where Oliver finally spreads himself too thin. He wants to do so many things and be good at so many things that he, you know, you suddenly get to a point where you realize, okay, that's great, but you can only do so much. And I think that we kind of have the, that point in our lives, don't we? I know that with me being a dad and, and you know, doing the show here and having some other jobs that I do as well, trying to combine everything sometimes is just a little overwhelming. And you need to take a step back and say, well, you know, maybe, maybe I am spreading myself too thin and maybe I need to put more of my focus on one thing or a couple of different things. And I think that that is what Oliver finds out. Again, being a dad, trying to be the Green Arrow, trying to be the mayor, trying to be everything for his city and everything for his team at the same time. And then that fractures the relationship with the team and certain things that Oliver felt like he needed to do. Now, I will say that the whole team conflict thing did get a bit annoying for me. I thought it was petty and childish at times. I will freely admit that. And that's on both sides too, by the way. I know that it worked out in the end, and I know that it was kind of an unjustify the means thing when you see, as Felicity called it, the the farewell tour of Oliver. I think that I'm paraphrasing there, that that's what she called it. So you understand why that ended up happening so he could go around and make amends with everybody and tell everybody how great of a job they did before he ends up going, again, spoiler alert, off to prison at the end of the season. So, I mean, I'm just not sure that that end justified those means, though. Did you have to do that to make that last portion of the season meaningful? I'm not really sure that you did. I mean, yeah, I guess it worked out, but ah, I don't know. It still was really, really annoying and almost to the point where where it was difficult for me to keep watching the show every week. But, I mean, again, then you had that twist where you could, it looked like Oliver was going to prison, right? Ricardo Diaz had everybody in his pocket from cops to judges, and it looked like jurors too, that it looked like, okay, Oliver is definitely going to prison. And then you get that twist with Tommy and, you know, the whole mask thing, and and it, and it works out. Now, Oliver does end up going to prison eventually, but in that moment, it felt like the show sort of, sort of shifted and changed for this season where it was like, okay, you're starting to lose me a little bit, and you th- and I think I know where this is going. It's getting predictable, and then they turn it on, on on its ear, and it's not predictable at all, and you got me back in that moment. Not to say I didn't enjoy some parts of the season, like especially early on, I thought that they were doing they were having a great season. The whole storyline with Caden James and why was he going after Oliver and trying to destroy his family and his city and blackmailing him and everything? Why was that happening? I liked that, and I also liked the twist of after they got Caden James and then Ricardo Diaz took over. Again, another evolving villain story. I thought that I was really intriguing, but then it was when Ricardo Diaz took over and some of the things that happened after that, and, it, and it's nothing to do with how good or not good Ricardo Diaz was because I think that, that he was a great villain this season, and it I, looks like we're going to be seeing him into next season as well for the first time ever on air that we've kind of had a carryover villain, right? I mean, you could argue Slade Wilson or the league, I guess, but this just feels like a true carryover villain. So it's not to say that I didn't enjoy a lot of things about the season. And overall, I think it was a good season, but there were certainly things wrong with it. Like again, Felicity is still Felicity. I'm not really sure we got a whole lot of growth there. And again, she could have been, she could be a little bit annoying at times. And then you have Black Siren. I thought the Black Siren story was actually really, really great and the emotional connection that she ended up having for not her dad, but her dad kind of thing, right? And how that changed her. The way Black Siren changed over time, it wasn't like a snap of the fingers where it was like, okay, like, and I'll discuss this about the, with the Flash here in a second. Where it's like, okay, let's just let her be good now. And she's, I mean, she makes good decisions, but is she ever truly really good? I guess in that end moment, maybe she is when you see her dad die and you see her in that moment with Sarah and everything. I guess maybe that's when she kind of turns over, turns over a new leaf. But, but again, it's not a solid, as you would call it in the wrestling world, face turn. Was it? And it was, and it was an overtime thing. And she, you know, she'd fall off the wagon a little bit, and she'd go back, and then she'd start to straighten out again. So I thought that that evolution was maybe one of the best things that they did this season. 
but again, as far as individual performances go, a great job by David Ramsey. I thought Diggle's story was really, really great this season. And he and Oliver, Stephen Amell, again, doing a fantastic job. Love seeing Colton Hayes back. And I really, really hope you could almost do a spinoff show with Thea and Roy, couldn't you? And and everything that's going on there and Thea trying to find out what's going on with herself and going off with Nessa. If we could get some sort of a spinoff or web series on that, I'd be totally cool with that. So let's get to work on that, shall we? Now let's move on to The Flash, where, you know, we were promised there was going to be no speedster villain this time for the first time, and we did get that. But what we kind of end up getting with The Thinker was almost a super meta. I did like early on in The Thinker where he was always one step ahead, and it seemed like he had Barry dead to rights so many times, even sent Barry to prison at one point with that with that frame job, which I thought was brilliant. But then it kind of became like, okay, so he's stealing people's powers, and yeah, he's getting greedy, and you can understand why they did that, you know, to kind of separate he and his wife from that situation where she figures out, okay, he's getting too evil, I need to take off, and then she plays an integral role and end up ending up stopping him in the end. But, I mean, turning him in, into a super meta was kind of a bummer because I thought you could have kept going with what you're doing early on in the season with the thinker, and that would have worked out just fine. And But, again, I understand why the whole stealing powers thing happened, and that made him even more of a threat because maybe he was enough of a threat in his current state. But having his mind be the thing, that took that tried tried to take Barry down. I thought worked so well in the beginning, and and I I guess I don't know. I thought it would have been cool if they have stuck with that, and maybe that's not comics accurate either. But I, I just think that that would have been a really neat thing to do. What we also see is that Iris taking the lead as kind of the head of the Star Labs group and Team Flash proved to be the right call, and it proved to be pretty darn awesome because we saw Barry struggle to be a true leader of the team plenty of times, even getting in arguments with Iris and other members of the team because he's just so stressed out that he can't seem to solve this problem. But one thing I loved about this season, maybe my favorite part about this season, was Ralph and the elongated man story. I mean, especially him learning what it was like to be a hero, but his comic relief in this I mean, you you relied on Cisco so much to be the comic relief in the past, and Barry, of course, would would have his comedic moments as well, and and you know other members of the cast would too, but Ralph just added something to the show that was so missing in a in a season that was so serious last year. I mean, it was pretty serious at times this season too, but Ralph sort of just brought something to the group that just really lightened everything up, didn't it? And yeah, sure, he could be annoying at times, but I mean the. And the role he ended up playing in the end in stopping the thinker overall, and like when Barry meets him in the thinker's mind, that moment was was just a really, really cool moment. One thing I would have liked to have seen them do, though, with Caitlin and Killer Frost, and I think that Daniel Panabaker actually mentioned this in, in interviews at some point towards the end of the season, was that it would have been nice to see the Killer Frost story sort of evolve and to her just being evil. I understand why they didn't do that. It's hard to take Caitlyn out of that group. And maybe the group wouldn't be quite the same without her in it. But still, making Killer Frost evil would have been a really, really cool thing for them to do. And it's not to say they can't still do it. And, you know, maybe you don't want to have Killer Frost and the Thinker to deal with. And you want to put the spotlight on the Thinker as the main villain. But maybe towards the end... See that, okay, Killer Frost is back, but now she's full-on evil and you have to deal with that. So, we, we, I mean, we got a little bit of that, especially between Cisco and Caitlyn when Caitlyn was Killer Frost. And when she was evil, how that affected Cisco, more so than the rest of the team, I think is something that I wish we could have seen more. And maybe there is still a little bit of a chance for that. But, I mean, poor Harry, right? You've got a couple of ways of thinking about this, though, with the, with the whole thinking cap and the dark matter affecting his mind. So now his mind is not what it was. So you can either feel bad for him or take the perspective that, see, he sort of had at the end is like, I'm going to go be with my daughter. I'm going to go spend more time with her this way because now, you know, I'm not caught up in my own mind. I can be a dad. I can be a friend. I can be a family man again. And, and certainly this doesn't seem like the end of Harrison Wells on The Flash. I'm sure that 
We'll either have that Harrison Wells or another Harry at some point, or the Council of Wells even, show up in the Flash. But I actually thought that that was another cool story that they did and how you take Harry's most precious thing away from him, but then you give him another gift that he doesn't even realize he needed until he gets it. I thought that that was a really neat moment. This season really, really did a great job at making you care about the secondary characters, especially the characters that the thinkers' powers, that the powers that he was stealing from these characters, those characters that ended up dying as a result, especially a couple of them, they really made you care about those characters in those moments that happened in a short amount of time. And thumbs up to the writer's room for that because I know that that was probably no easy task. And the performance of the cast overall also really hammered that home. So I thought that was a very cool thing that they did. Joe and Cecile having a baby I thought was hilarious. Everything about that was great. Cecile having her mind reading powers and how that sort of changed things between her and Joe and a couple of members of Team Flash as well. I thought was really, really funny. And then, of course, you know, who was the waitress? Who was the barista? And ends up being Nora Allen all along. And then we see that, you know, she's traveled back in time for a reason. And that's where we set up next season. So I I can't wait to see what she's going to be bringing to the table next year. And, And again, while it wasn't perfect, I think another solid overall season for The Flash. There was a lot of things to love about it. Very, very quickly, just because it seems like it's been forever since these finales have happened, I want to talk about Black Lightning and, and a show that really, really added some necessary grit and something new and different to DC TV, right? I mean, the show was not afraid to drop bodies. It wasn't afraid to get gruesome at times and deal with real-life issues, too, in a way that wasn't in your face. I thought that the show actually did a pretty good job of that. But, I mean, it was not afraid to tackle... Those issues, and I and I absolutely respect that. No matter how you might have felt about how they dealt with it, I respect that it, they weren't afraid to to do that and to at times show both sides of arguments too. And I thought that the show actually did that at times. Watching Jefferson being forced back into his role as the hero as Black Lightning while trying to put his family back together was so so powerful early on in the season. I thought the theme of family was very very prevalent as well, especially watching his daughters evolve into heroes even before they got their powers I feel like they were very empowered on the screen as well in certain moments early on and then you give them them their powers and you see them fighting with dad I thought that that was a special moment this show just felt like it was the most personal out of all of them and I hope that that's something that the show does not lose coming up in his second season and it'll be very interesting to see where it goes this season and what kind of a tenor That it takes because remember Arrow was very personal early on as well. And then it sort of shifted into, you know, you have failed this city too. I must save my city. So it'll be very curious to see how that evolution happens for the Black Lightning series in season two. Quickly, Legends of Tomorrow, still not afraid to be the show that has the comic relief, the show that seems to take the most risk, and the show with the lovable losers. They've found a theme that works for them. I've talked about this before. You found something that worked for you. You ran with it. Do not get away from that. And then, again, you had the evolution from Rip Hunter and the anachronisms, which the anachronisms still played a part in the the entire season. But then you have the threat of malice and the supernatural thing going on. You were Constantine in, which really seemed like it was going to be a bit of a gamble, but it really, really paid off, and he actually fit in really well with the team, and we'll see how that's going to go next season. I thought bringing Zari in really brought a fresh thing, fresh perspective to the group as well, and eventually how she ends up fitting in, and, and her st- and her storyline kind of being tied in with the Mayas, I thought was really neat. In its current format, DC's Legends of Tomorrow not only probably had its best season this past season, but has really found its way. And, and a show that definitely struggled at times, I think is going to be unapologetically what it has been this past season and that is definitely a good thing keep up the good work on dc's legends of tomorrow covered a lot of ground that's going to do it for this week in geek tamant so up next how about even more nerd news let's find out what's current next on the down and nerdy podcast hi this is writer mike johnson and you are listening to the down and nerdy podcast a galaxy far far away seems even farther away for some characters now because it's time for nerd news and the Star Wars spin-off movies might not be happening again anytime soon. This according to Collider that Lucasfilms 
is putting a hold on all of the episodic, excuse me, of the Star Wars story type movies. Now, the focus is going to be on Episode 9 now in the upcoming Ryan Johnson trilogy. Also, the trilogy that's going to be coming up from David Benoff and D.B. Weiss, of course, from Game of Thrones fames. Those are still in development. What looks like the Obi-Wan movie and the Boba Fett movie appeared to be on hold right now. Now, the first thing that you're going to think of, because it's the most recent thing, is Solo a Star Wars story to blame? You can go back a couple of episodes and listen to what I thought about that. I enjoyed it, didn't think it was perfect, certainly thought that it had its fair share of problems, but still not a bad movie, right? But to me, I mean, if you really want to point the finger at somebody, I mean, the marketing for Solo a Star Wars story was pretty darn terrible. And didn't we kind of already know who Han Solo was, and we weren't really given much to make us think we'd get something new in those trailers or what was presented to us. So, I mean, unless you really, really deeply cared about seeing the backstory for Han Solo and a little bit of Lando and Chewie and stuff like that, then, I mean, as a casual fan anyway, you're thinking, okay, I I kind of already know what I need to know about this dude. Not really much is going to change my mind. Now, does that mean the movie wasn't worth seeing after having seen it? No, I actually think that it was worth seeing. And we got to see some cool stuff. But again, it's a diehard type of thing because you're not really giving me anything new. And, you know, in the same vein, I guess, doing something new is risky, but it worked out with this new trilogy, right? People love Ray, People love Finn. And, you know, there's certain characters that have just, you know, come up and been very, very popular in these new movies. So I don't know why you'd be too scared to try something new. And then also, speaking of which, multiple sources reporting this now that Disney is going to stop taking chances, excuse me, Lucasfilm's going to stop taking chances on directors. And I mean, you brought in Ron Howard and it still wasn't enough to save Solo a Star Wars story. So I'm not exactly sure what you think you're accomplishing by doing that. And you know what? Sometimes a fresh perspective is not necessarily a bad thing. You never know what you're necessarily going to get until you take a chance. And I think that, you know, you could argue that maybe Patty Jenkins was a little bit of a chance to take on the Wonder Woman movie. I don't think she was. I think she's a fantastic talent, but she really got to prove what she could do with a superhero franchise with Wonder Woman, and look how that worked out. The biggest one I point to is Thor Ragnarok. What about Taika Waititi? I mean, think about that for a second. Where would Thor Ragnarok have been without that dude? And James Gunn, for that matter, going back to Guardians of the Galaxy. So there's a couple of examples where you might, you could argue that Marvel took a chance on those guys, and it paid off. So I don't know that you necessarily need to stop doing that. I think that the funny thing is is that it's like you're looking for reasons to point the finger at anybody but yourself, and I think that that's a little bit sad. Uh, You have to admit that you can also make mistakes, learn from those mistakes, and move on. I don't think it was necessarily what was happening with the director that was the reason that these movies have quote-unquote failed. I say failed because... I don't really see Solo as that much of a failure. Is it a failure in the eyes of the mega blockbuster that every Star Wars movie seems to be, regardless of what it's about? Think about it, though. Those the episodes 8 and 7 had some headlining names that we know in them and a mix of new characters. The problem is, is that with Solo, a Star Wars story, all you showed me was, there's Han, there's Lando, there's Chewie, oh, and there's other people in it too, but we don't really want to tell you about who they are. So, how am I supposed to get excited about that? For all I know, the entire movie is going to be about these guys. So, I mean, you've got to look at your own self at some point and wonder if you're doing the right thing. And I'm not saying I'm not looking forward to the Ryan Johnson trilogy. I'm not saying I'm not looking forward to the other set of movies that are coming. I'm not even saying that I need these a Star Wars story movies, but I think every now and then, Doing a spinoff like that and giving me maybe just a one-off. Like Rogue One is a one-off movie, and I thought it was a fantastic Star Wars movie. One of the best, certainly in recent memory. Anyway, so I mean, to just not do this, you don't have to do it, but to not do it for that reason just seems a little bit silly to me. Speaking of things that are going to be done, a new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie is coming this according to the, the Hollywood Reporter, and Paramount has hired Bad Words writer Andrew Dodge for the script. Now, Michael Bay, still kind of involved in this. Andrew Form and Brad Fuller are going to produce. Of course, they were behind the hit A Quiet Place, and I don't think A Quiet Place, when I think Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, by the way. There's nothing quiet about those kids. 
Now, this looks to be another complete reboot, which I don't necessarily think is a bad thing. I actually didn't mind the last two movies. I didn't think that they were bad. I didn't think that they were groundbreaking in any way, like the first Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie was for its time. But I I didn't think there was anything overly spectacular about them, but I didn't think there was anything overly bad about them either. So I guess I understand why you do a total reboot, but even having Michael Bay in the building for this, I'm not sure how much you can really reboot this. I know that maybe... Michael Bay gets a lot of the blame for things that have gone wrong in the Transformers franchises and maybe even Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Maybe he gets more of the blame than he actually should. But again, if you did if you did any of the franchises right, I think Ninja Turtles was the closest that he certainly got. And rebooting this is fine. But I mean, you hire a, a writer that, I mean, I don't know a whole lot about Andrew Dodge's work, but if you go back and look at the stuff that he's already done, nothing really is jumping out at you. And I mean, unless you were... Just a really big fan of the movie Bad Words, which I didn't think was a huge success either. Maybe he's just got a really killer idea, and I'm really open-minded to that. But it's not like... And I, I do go back to the Star Wars thing where I just said, you don't necessarily need a name, you don't need to take a chance, and, you know, and they're not going to take any chances, and maybe they should. Maybe this is a chance worth taking, because maybe you look at it and you go, you know what? This wasn't really working. So let's try it this way and see what happens. Maybe they're going to do a little bit more more edge, too. I mean, you get the guys from A Quiet Place, and then you get the guy that wrote a movie like Bad Words that had a ton of those in them. I'm not saying we're going to see, see F-bombs from Raphael or anything, but maybe they will go for a little bit more of an edge and more of a little bit of an adult spin on the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles franchise because you tried to, to, to center it towards kids, and I think they actually did a good job with that. Maybe now we're going to get Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movies that are kind of made for adults, and where's the harm in that? Let's go ahead and give that a shot. It sounds like CBS, by the way, is going to give Star Trek more than just a shot to have a ton of chances on that network because a press release states that a new the new Star Wars Discovery showrunner, Alex Kurtzman, has signed a five-year deal with CBS, and is do and in doing so going to be expanding the franchise. Now there's multiple sources on this, so so follow me along, and we'll try and get through these. Entertainment Re- Weekly reports that up to three new shows are in development, with one other source say, with other sources saying that it could be as many as five. Then you've got the Hollywood Reporter jumping in and saying that Patrick Stewart could reprise his role as Jean-Luc Picard in for ones for one of the series. Then Variety says. That there's a report that one could be set at Starfleet Academy with creators Stephanie Savage and John Schwartz. Uh, Josh Schwartz, of course, did Runaways and did a great job with that series. And then we have a thing that says that there could be a possible limited series based on The Wrath of Khan. Okay, that's a lot to digest. So let's think about this here for a second. I don't necessarily mind them expanding the franchise, although. If I'm being honest about Star Trek Discovery, it just doesn't really feel a ton like a Star Trek show. It's definitely a sci-fi show. It's definitely got those elements to it, but it just doesn't feel very Star Trek. But maybe that's the point, and maybe that's a good thing. And that's kind of been my argument with Star Trek Discovery from the beginning. And then you tell me that we might get Jean-Luc Picard back and Patrick Stewart, which as much as I would love to see Patrick Stewart back in Star Trek, again, this is not something that I absolutely need. Maybe it won't be a lot. Maybe he'll just show up every now and then. That wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing. The one that has my attention, and this makes me wonder if they've been paying paying attention to the IDW comics that have been going on for Star Trek that have been spectacular, is the one that's going to be based possibly at Starfleet Academy because they had a Starfleet comic with IDW that was really, really good, but you don't necessarily have to set it in like the Kirk and Spock era. You can make this... An entirely new show with entirely new characters because, I mean, let's face it, it's not like Star Trek has ever shied away from creating something brand new that's kind of that's loosely based in a certain universe. And then you get the team from the Runaways that are involved in that and make it a make it a younger type show. I am all in for something like that if that's what they want to do. So again, I'm not I'm not opposed to more Star Trek. I just hope that. We're not beating old drums for the sake of doing that because I think we get enough reboots and rehashes and stuff like that in TV and in movies. So, I mean, it seems like the theme for this nerd news is take a chance. Maybe you take a chance on something a little bit different and see what happens. And then you put the budget of CBS behind it 
and and you back it and you do it in good faith and you might have a huge huge success on your hands maybe even without a star like Patrick Stewart so I'm very interested to see if any of this is made official or expanded on at San Diego Comic-Con this year. Speaking of Star Trek, we're going to do a little bit of a comic news roundup here quickly. io9 revealed earlier this week, and then another press release from IDW, that we're getting Star Trek versus Transformers comics coming in September, which I'm super excited about, mainly because John Barber and Mike Johnson, who have been amazing at writing Transformers and Star Trek respectively, Going to be teaming up to write this. Philip Murphy's going to be on the art as well. It's going to be a four-issue series inspired by the respective animated series for both properties. Of course, the Star Trek one from the 70s and the 80s for the Transformers. The premise that was given for this is that it starts out in the Star Trek universe with Enterprise responding to a distress call from the edge of Klingon space to find an attack from 20th century era jets and helicopters Sound familiar? And then Optimus shows up. I mean, they don't say it Optimus, but it's definitely Optimus. He shows up to help out, and that's kind of where everything begins. It just seems like this is something that should have been done already. I almost was tempted to look back and say, wait a minute. How has that never been done before? But it hasn't. And and again, it's something that just makes perfect sense to me. And I mean, this the 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 kind of interplanetary political aspects of this as well, which is something that the Transformers comics have never been, never wanted to shy away from, and even in the crossover comics as well, in the big arcs like like Revolution and First Strike, never, ever have they shied away from that at IDW. But to make it so, it's going to be the two animated series type of vibe. So if you see the art, if you've seen the cover, it looks, it just looks so purely authentic like the animated series. I am so, so pumped for this. And with the creative team that's involved, I already know this is going to be a winner before I even read a page. So I can't wait for that to get here in September. That's not all that's coming in September, though, because Stranger Things comics are officially going to be coming, and they are coming from Dark Horse. The publisher signed a multi-year publishing deal with Netflix, with the first issue again set to drop in late September. Jody Hauser is going to be doing the writing. Of course, speaking of IDW, worked on the Orphan Black comics for IDW. Stefano Martino on the pencils and Keith Champagne going to be doing the inks. And if you've seen a little bit of the art that was kind of previewed in, in the release that came out from, from Dark Horse, man, it really, really reminds me of the art in Harrow County. And I think that that is such a smart thing for them to do, especially Harrow County going to be ending next week. And that's been a great comic. It's been a great run from Colin Bunn. This is actually a, a good story that I think will eventually be able to take that place, take that book's place on the publishing line in September, because while the shows aren't directly similar, the vibe is kind of similar. So stranger things can kind of pick up where Harrow County left off and a named property like stranger things it's not necessarily a bad thing to have that going for you with IDW. Now, there's no word on what the stories might be for this, but aren't there really tons of possibilities? Even stuff that we haven't even seen yet. I mean, you could go with Hopper's backstory. We don't really know. I mean, we, he's told us, but we didn't get to see exactly what happened with his family and how he ended up where he was. I, I wouldn't mind going back and doing a prequel thing like that. Maybe explore more of Will's time in the Upside Down as well. I know we kind of did that too a little bit, but there's just, again, so many different stories that you can tell, and I'm actually surprised it's taken this long for Stranger Things to come to comics. And if this show ever does you know, end a little bit too soon, now you've got the multi-year publishing deal to where you've got the opportunity to pick that story up right where it left off or maybe tell a little bit more of a story after a season ends and go, okay, so here's the cliffhanger we gave you. Let's give you a little bit of something in between seasons. So I think that this is a really smart move by both parties involved in Netflix and in Dark Horse. And I'm, I'm looking forward to this because I love Stranger Things anyway. But seeing the art and seeing that Jody Hauser is involved, I know that Jody's going to do a great, great job with this and looking forward to a lot more. That's going to do it for Nerd News this week. Up next, the two-hour finale of The Expanse is going to be coming up on Sci-Fi, so we better get Alex on board. Cassie Anvar joins me next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Jay Taylor from The Magicians, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This week, we thought we'd take a little flight on the Rocinante and talk about The Expanse. Of course, the big two-hour finale coming up this Wednesday on Sci-Fi. So who better to pilot us on that journey than Alex Kamal himself, Cass Anvar. What's up, man? Woo-hoo! 
I assume that you're really stoked and excited because you guys are back next year. So let's talk about that for a little, for for just a second. So, right. I mean, right. Other than for your fellow cast members and for yourself, obviously. I mean, once you find out the show was canceled by Sci-Fi, what made you want to fight so hard for the Expanse? Oh my God, where do I start? If you can imagine working with probably the best team I've ever worked with, the best cast, the best crew, the best best writing team ever that I've ever had the joy to work with, then add to that one of the most amazing source material set of novels. You know, we, we got to the end of season three. We knew we had a special season with season three and we were so excited when the the premiere happened and we got 100 percent on rotten tomatoes and we were like yes what we were hoping for is happening season three is going to even better than season two and the, the fans were loving it and the reviews were coming out and then each episode after that got better and better and better and then i started reading book four book five of the expanse series and i was like holy crap we haven't even gotten to the climax of this series of of the story we're we're not we're not even there yet and we're already blowing people's minds with the show we when when it got canceled i was like i was depressed we were we were depressed because we were losing our family we were depressed because we were losing our jobs we were depressed because we didn't get a chance to finish this amazing story right this amazing story that that we felt like we and the fans deserved and had earned the right to tell. Now, I'll admit freely that I was a little bit late to the party on The Expanse. Not too late, but a little bit late. So I actually started watching the show for the first time on Amazon. So now that Amazon has saved the show, do you kind of feel like that's the perfect fit? Oh, yeah. I mean, it makes total sense. We have seasons one and season two already there. It's got a home there. It's got a fan base there. People have already started watching it there. I mean, and that and the the fact that Amazon is a streaming network, which is how this show really profits from and benefits from being watched that way. It's a It's a very detailed, organic space opera. And then add one more element to it. And Jeff Bezos, the head of Amazon.com, is a huge Expanse fan. Yeah, that doesn't and, hurt your cause, does it? <laughs> you know, when he's demonstrating the the Amazon Kindle, when he's demonstrating it on stage, guess what book is on the Kindle? Mm-hmm. Leviathan Wakes, the first book. Yeah. yeah. So everything makes sense about it, and uh, I think the Amazon people are going to have a field day uh, promoting this show. I think we're going to have a really, really wonderful time with our new people. Um, and all of that to say, though, like let, let's let's not discount what Sci-Fi has accomplished, though. Sci-Fi, sure. which which is a small network relative to the uh, the worlds out there of of television networks, uh, managed to put three seasons out of an epic space opera with incredible production values, and managed to honor the the soul and the tone of the source material impeccably. Like the like I can honestly say that. The transfer from novels to television was done almost flawlessly. Uh, in some cases, the sh- show is even better than the books. Uh, the writing room and the, the, the network contributions to the show have made it even better. Now let's talk about Alex a little bit because I feel like we've kind of gotten to know him a lot better this season and things that he's been through. So what has it been like to kind of explore more of his backstory after now nearly three seasons? Well, it's it's been very rewarding. Alex is one of the least developed characters in the books, and he was one of the least kind of touched upon in terms of his history in the series. And I think a lot of people were kind of getting curious about who is this guy? Where does he come from? His, his past is kind of mysterious. He, he's a little bit older than the rest of the crew. He seems to have a little bit more of a domestic side to him, wife and kids and all that. You know, he's, he's got this Southern accent and he's a Martian. And it, we've explored the Belters quite a lot. We really know who the Belters are. We've gotten to understand the, the Earthers uh, quite a lot because we have very strong representatives on the show with Avasarala, Holden, Amos. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of Earthers that we get to explore what the Earther culture is like, and the Belters are extremely prominent, and we get to see a lot of how they think it. But we don't get to see a lot about the Martians. Bobby is definitely uh, a hardcore Martian, but she's a Martian military. Um, and even though Alex is Martian military as well, he's a little more down to earth. He's a little more. Every man, he's a little more human, and I think he's very, very relatable 
to the everyday audience. And I think we're going to find out a little bit more about what makes Martians tick now that we're going to get a season four because it's it's a big part of uh, what happens in the in the future in the books. Yeah, that's definitely a tease. I like that. I like that. All the more reason to make sure you're watching The Expanse on Amazon right now. It seems like on the show, everyone has either been at war or on the brink of war from the beginning. Yet Alex has kind of found a family in the crew of the Rocinante. So with things being so turbulent, have you ever thought about what would have become of Alex had he not found this crew? Oh, man, he'd be a lost soul. I mean, that's why he was on the Canterbury, right? That's why everyone was on the Canterbury. They were all lost souls trying to hide from themselves, trying to hide from uh, the world, trying to hide from their past. And if, uh, I mean, it's kind of sad to say, but if the events that took place that kind of propelled them and catapulted them into um, trying to escape with their lives, if that had not happened, they probably all would have remained lost souls. Mm -hmm. They probably all would have not really risen to their full potential, which is what they had to do in order to survive. That includes Alex. Alex was forced into a situation where he had to become what he was truly meant to be, which is the best fighter pilot in the system, and to be the heart and soul of this new family. Uh, he's the glue that keeps them together. He's he's the kind of voice of reason. You've got a very, very well-balanced crew uh, but their backstories are all so incredibly dramatic mm-hmm. and volatile. Alex is the the guy who makes lasagna and tells everyone to come to dinner. <laughs> That's right. That kind of leads me to my next question because, I mean, in a family, everyone has that role that they play or that they're seen as. So, I mean, I know that you, I think it was you that actually, <laughs> or it was Alex himself that re- referred to himself as a quote-unquote gl- glorified bus driver. But exactly. I don't That's think exactly he's, what he was. I don't think he's that anymore. And, and and definitely not. From the outside looking in, what do you kind of feel like his place in that family is? Is he that glue? Yeah, he is. I mean, he's definitely the guy that tries to keep everyone together. Holden is kind of the uh, the leader. Uh, he's the head, the moral kind of um, actuator. He 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 gives people their purpose and their. He's always looking for something to do, something to say, someone to save. Amos is just trying to keep everyone safe, keep everyone alive. He's a survivalist, trying to find his own soul. And Naomi's got kind of like she's kind of a moral compass. She's she's got a lot of morality to her. She's she's incredibly intelligent. And her and Holden very often grapple for leadership because they both have incredibly great perceptions of what's going on and they they're incredibly perceptive of the political climate. They're coming from completely different backgrounds. Uh, she's very suspicious of everything, and he's kind of like a wide-eyed and, and trusting of everyone. And then Alex, <laughs> really, is just trying to keep everyone together because they're, they're so volatile. They're so emotional. There's so much upheaval. They're constantly threatening to rupture and fracture and break apart. And this family is so important to him. It is what he has been looking for his whole life. Talking to Cass Anvar, of course, who plays Alex on The Expanse. The two-hour season finale is going to be coming up next week. Of course, you can watch the show right now, sci-fi.com. Now, a little bit of a spoiler for this past week's episode. If you haven't watched it yet, we're going to talk a little bit about that episode because you actually get Naomi back in this past Mm. week's episode. So what was that reunion like, and how do you think her not being with the crew kind of affected things this season? Uh, it affected things huge. I mean, she, like I said, she's a moral kind of anchor on the show, and she provides a very, very important belter perspective to everything because the belters have been screwed over by everyone, left, right, and center for hundreds of years. And so they're they're the oppressed. They're the people who have been abused and taken advantage of. And so their perspective is incredibly important on, on the ship. Now it's just a bunch of guys who who are struggling without that without that compass point trying to figure things out on their own and the way in the way we get her back he's really really grateful absolutely now one of the things that surprised me about this past week's episode was the olive branch that was kind of extended by the belters to treat the wounded on their ships how much of an impact did that is that going to have in the upcoming finale and how did you feel when you saw that in the script for the first time it's uh, I mean it's a part of of the books as they were written so it's a huge it's an incredibly huge gesture and statement uh and for me uh, it's one of the the goosebump factors Alex one of these people who believes in segregation and separation and he knows like the difference 
cultures and the different species all have their own little things but he's he's a huge believer in unity he's a huge believer in family he's a huge believer in that we are all meant we're all part of one family the human race you know um that is definitely his perspective so when when he comes in and looks at all these wounded people of all different races and shapes and sizes and and i think for him it's like it's like seeing world peace you know for the first time absolutely now we know how good of a pilot that alex actually is and of course we had solo a star wars story come out not too long ago so i can't help but wonder Mm -hmm. from one pilot (laughs) to another how do you think alex would have done on that castle run (laughs) alex would kick its ass man (laughs) he is that guy has got some serious skills. He he has been he has been under from the moment he was in the Martian Academy. He has all these skills that he didn't even know he has. He's, he has an ability to absorb information, and his reflexes and his responses are incredibly fast. Like that's one of the things I've been learning about him is that a lot of his talent uh, it's it's twofold. He's incredibly naturally gifted. And he is a perfectionist, and he takes the burden of responsibility of being a pilot hugely seriously. He takes it so seriously because he basically feels everyone's life is in his hand, and he's responsible for everyone's life. So he works and works and works and works and works until he is absolutely perfect. And then he will strategize and plan and practice in advance, ahead of time, planning things in case of problems. He wants to be prepared. He He's not some fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants kind of swashbuckling pilot. He is a highly disciplined, highly trained military man who has a personality that is unable and unwilling to accept anything less than perfection. So it's a, it's a very lethal combination. I'm sure that fans that have seen this past week's episode... Uh... I've already even the episode before that are kind of on edge after what Holden has just seen and I think fans are very much kind of uneasy going into the finale coming up I next bet. week so how much yeah. of a game changer is that two part finale of course without spoiling anything and do you feel um, like it changes the show as we know it right now definitely yes to all those questions this uh, I, I look at seasons one two and three as the first movement in a space opera and once we get to season four, we are starting the second movement of the show, of the series. And there's going to be a huge tonal shift and a huge energy shift that happens, which is unlike anything I've ever seen in a TV show before, which I'm absolutely thrilled and excited to be able to jump into and bring to the, the people. I think you have to be prepared to have your minds blown by the end of uh, season three. Maybe uh, wear a motorcycle helmet or something like that to keep the mess in. Yeah, I definitely going to want to want to make sure you're nice and padded for this one. That's mm-hmm. for sure. One more question, Cass, before I let you go. Going back mm-hmm. to the show being saved and being canceled at the end of season three, had that actually held and, and came to pass and you guys weren't able to come back for a fourth season, what do you think your right. biggest regret would have been for Alex and fans not getting to see about him? Oh, man, there is so much story coming. Like I can honestly say that the climax of this a uh, series of books has not even shown its head yet. Like you haven't even. If we're on an iceberg right now, we we are still at the tip of the iceberg. We are we have unveiled, uh, and you can now see this massive story lurking below the surface. But we haven't even broken the water yet. So it would have been tragic to not be able to see where this was leading, and it would have been tragic to not get to see where these broken brutalized misfits that came from the Canterbury, how they evolved, how they grew, and who they were eventually meant to become. Their transformations are basically really wonderful to watch. And you've only seen like the beginnings of what they're supposed to be. So that would have been sad. All the more reason for you to watch the two-hour finale of Season 3 of The Expanse this Wednesday at 9 p.m. on Sci-Fi. You still have time to catch up, by the way. You do have the weekend to catch up on Amazon as well or Sci-Fi.com if you're not all the way up to date on The Expanse. And you should be. It's Cass Anvar, Alex from the Rossi itself. Thanks so much for joining me this week. My pleasure, man. And uh, thank you to all the fans that made this possible. It's all because of you guys. You guys moved the mountain. You broke the glacier. You made it happen. I know that fans are happy about season four of The Expanse coming to Amazon. But let me tell you, I got a little bit of a sneak peek at the finale that's going to be happening this Wednesday on Sci-Fi. You are really going to be blown away. Cass is right. You, You have no idea 
what you're getting in for. I also liked what Cass said, though. Not only happy to be going to Amazon with the expansion season four, but, you know, giving props to sci-fi and what they did for the first three seasons of the show. And I think that's kind of been a little bit lost in this Expanse story and that sci-fi did do an amazing job. It was just time to move on, and I think it's going to benefit the Expanse and sci-fi as well. But we're not done with sci-fi just yet. The two-hour season finale of The Expanse, season three, happening this Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern on Sci-Fi. You don't want to miss that. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Of course, thanks to Cass Anvar once again for joining me this week. Be sure to check out the newly designed downandnerdypodcast.com. Still under construction a little bit, but a lot more content on there for you. You can also find out how to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app, whether it be SoundCloud or Apple Podcasts or the new Google Podcast app that came out. You can find out how to do that. Also, find us on social media, facebook.com slash downandnerdy, at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram as well. Remember, as always, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.